Grab a Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 27. Uh, you may have your phone, which is fine. If you do not have a phone or iPad, there are Bibles in the aisles on either side. You're going to want to grab um, a copy of the Scriptures today. We're, we're going to cover an incredible story in Acts chapter 27, and you're going to want to be able to reference back to it. Can you, can you smell the fact that we're almost there? You smell something? Can you sense that we're getting close? You know what I'm talking about? The end of the book of Acts. It's just around the corner. Just a couple of weeks left. And uh, we're going to be getting to the end of this amazing book. But there's still some good stuff left. And today is one of those stories that's probably one of the best stories within this entire book. We're going to study all of chapter 27 today. Probably one of the greatest seafaring stories of all time. I would say it rivals Moby Dick or the old man in the sea. Or The Perfect Storm. Anybody seen The Perfect Storm? Remember that old movie? Yeah? How about uh, The Finest Hours? Anyone seen that recent movie? The Finest Hours? No one? No one? You need to watch that. It's a great movie. Show it to your kids. It's a, it's a good movie. Um, so there's just something mysterious and exciting about a great seafaring story, isn't there? What is it about being out on the ocean? Um, I know several summers ago I was looking for a good fictional book to take with me uh, to the beach, and I don't always read a lot of fiction, and I stumbled across this classic entitled Horatio Hornblower. It was written by C.S. Forster. Incredible series. The setting is this fictional Napoleonic War era um, Royal Navy officer who's the protagonist for that series. And the book was so popular, uh, it was then used on the radio and then television and film. And I ended up re reading the entire series over the next few months because I couldn't put it down. And the funny thing is, I don't even know anything about sailing or the ocean. In fact, I can just look at a boat. I'm kind of right there with Peter. Not Peter in the Bible, but Peter who's part of Mercy Hill. We can just kind of look at a boat and start to get a little seasick. And, um, but there's something just mysterious about the ocean and a good seafaring story. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The whole chapter is about being at sea. But here's the thing that's interesting. As you, we read this story, we're going to see not just a story about being at sea, but we're going to see a story about leadership. And that's what I hope that you'll take away. But not just any type of leadership, the kind of leadership that, that rises and that's produced by a crisis. In fact, let's do this. When you hear the word leadership, what comes to mind? Well, hang on. Don't tell me. Let's do this. It's been way too long since you said howdy to your neighbor. We do this from time to time at Mercy Hill. So what I'd like for you to do is turn to a neighbor, turn to someone who's close to you, someone that you didn't ride here with this morning. Say howdy. And then the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word leadership, share it with them. Take 30 seconds. Leadership. What comes to mind? And they don't want to hear from you. Go. Okay, one word. So it shouldn't take too long, right? Shouldn't, uh, one word. What comes to mind when you hear the word leadership? What did your friend next to you say? I want to hear a few people. What comes to mind when you hear the word leadership? Courage. Courage. Servant. Servant. Example. Example. Only three people thought of something when it comes to the word leadership. What else? What did your, what'd your neighbor say? Direction. One more. Influence. Influence. Yeah, those are great. So here's the deal. As we look at this chapter, if we were to take time and talk through leadership in today's secular culture, there's so much that's written about leadership these days. And while there are some things that is written about leadership that we would look at Culturally, maybe it's the New York Times bestseller. I know um, John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership continues to remain on Amazon's best 1,000 books, and it was written years ago. 
There's a lot of great principles about leadership, but I want to look in particular at what I believe we see in Paul's life, which is biblical leadership. And there's going to be some parallels, but there are going to be some differences as well. So I want to pull some of those out this morning. Follow along with me. We're going to read the entire chapter. It's going to take about five minutes, but it's a great story. It's a great story, okay? We're going to pick up in verse 1. This is quite possibly the chapter that I've read in the Bible that has the, the strangest cities and names in it, okay? But I'm going to do my best, so stick with me. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island named called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Surtees, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "'Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved.'" Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who would swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What an amazing story. The context, if, if you will remember the context of this story, Paul's been in prison for over two years, and now he's made his defense multiple times, but he's on his way to Caesar. He's on his way to Rome in Italy in order to appear before Caesar. You'll remember that Paul's made his defense uh, before a crowd. Remember that time the mob had him and soldiers carried him away and he stopped them at, at the top of the staircase and said, uh, may I say something? He made his defense before the crowd. He made his defense before the council, including the high priest, and then before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And now he'll make the same defense uh, before Caesar. The only thing is Paul's intention all along has been to go to Rome, to take the gospel to the largest and the most splendid of the ancient cities. See, there was nothing like Rome that we can compare today. There's no comparison to Rome. The greatest political achievement ever accomplished, some historians would say, ruling over the whole known world with efficient administration, with postal Communication with ambitious road systems and ports all was policed by uh, well-equipped legions and navy who all preserved the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. All the while, minimal land exchange took place over 200 years. Multiple cultures living in relative peace. There's nothing that we know like it today. Nothing throughout history. And all this coming from the capital and the symbol of the Roman Empire. And Paul longed to go there. He longed to go to Rome. Not to see the beautiful wonders of the world, but instead to share the eternal wonders of Jesus. Paul's desire was to go to the place where all roads met. His desire was to spread the gospel in Rome. And if the gospel could be spread in Rome, then surely the gospel was spread to all the known world. This great gospel the man who was God, who lived, who was crucified. And then, as one who rose from the grave and appeared to many, offering forgiveness of sins, offering eternal life, Paul wants to share that great gospel. And we pick up in the story as Paul is being delivered as a prisoner in order to sail for Italy. Uh, he's in Caesarea. At least we would suppose that was the last place that we saw him. And so he, he's there and he's delivered into the hands of a centurion, a man named Julius. So that's the first character that we see in this story. A centurion was an army officer who ruled over a hundred, but uh, this would have been a very elite army officer because he ruled over a cohort, which was a group of 600 men. So he ruled over uh, those who were known as, they were known as Augustine's cohort. So they would have been very sharp. They would have been elite soldiers because they were named after uh, the emperor. And so as we look at the story, they, they hop on board a ship uh, that's headed out. The first ship is probably a smaller ship that would stay closer to the edge of the land, kind of a coaster. And then we're going to see later on that they're going to hop onto a second ship that would have been a larger ship. It was one that was traveling from um, Alexandria, from Egypt. So Egypt was one of the main uh, exporters of, of grain and wheat to Rome. And so they hop on the ship in order to make it to Rome. And Paul's traveling companions are really interesting. We see Aristarchus' name come back up, the Thessalonican. And we see Luke. And all of a sudden, the writer of this book, we see once again that he starts using the pronoun we 
as he describes what takes place. Some commentators believe that Aristarchus and Luke may have sold themselves into slavery to be Paul's slave in order to travel with him. We don't know, but they're on the ship with him. And as they board the ship, they take one day and they travel to Sidon. They're making really good time. And I'll show you a map in just a minute that'll help you kind of see where we're headed. We'll get there in just a second. But really quickly, I want to get to my first point because there's there's five points that I want to share with you about leadership today. And the first point that we see comes up right from the beginning is that leaders build trust. Leaders build trust. These are biblical leadership. If you look, it's amazing in verse 3 that Julius allows Paul to leave the ship and to go and be cared for. Apparently, Paul was sick. If, if you, look in, you look at the Greek there, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. Some translations might say to be refreshed. It seems that Paul, who'd been in prison for over a couple of years, has been just in really poor conditions. can only imagine the lack of exercise, the lack of food, the heat, the cold. And so Paul, it seems, is not in very good health. And surprisingly, Julius, who has known Paul, it seems, only a day, releases him to go and see his friends in order that he would be cared for. What makes this so amazing is when you come to understand the consequences for a Roman soldier who would lose his prisoner. He'd be killed. He'd be put to death. And somehow, Paul has built the kind of trust with Julius that Julius was willing to risk his life in order to allow Paul to go and to be cared for. It's really amazing. Leaders build trust. They instill confidence. They are trustworthy. They do what they say. Their yes is yes, and their no is no, and they don't make excuses. Leaders build trust. They own up to their mistakes. They don't blame. They don't have secret meetings before the meetings. Um, Have you ever been on a team like that before? I know I have. Have you ever walked into a meeting before, and five minutes into the meeting, you realize that there was a meeting that took place before the meeting, and you're about to get ambushed? Those are never fun. They don't promote team. But leaders build trust. Trust is the foundation of any team. Uh, Without it, the entire organization or company or team, it all will come crashing down. The same is true for marriage. If you don't have trust in a marriage, then you have nothing. Trust is so important. Without trust, slow erosion threatens to destroy the confidence of any team. And it destroys that confidence from without and within. It's funny, you, you can't really fake trust. I mean, maybe some people can for a little bit of time. But if you're around people long enough, you can spot those who have your back and and those who are just faking it. Trust, you can spot it from far away. True leaders have everyone's back. No matter how much worth a teammate brings, a biblical leader seeks to do everything in their power for their team members good and nothing for their harm. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. See, the gospel enables us to build trust as leaders because we've seen it modeled by Jesus. Jesus has done for us through the gospel. He's looked at us and He's given us our best at His expense. And as leaders, we can give those who are around us, we can give them our best. And we can always have their best in mind. No matter what amount of weight or importance they bring to the team. Biblical leaders focus on the good of others. They don't focus on their own success. If you want to be part of a bad company or part of a bad church experience, get under the authority and the teaching of someone who has made ministry all about them. Before you know it, the church will be more about programs than a way of life. It'll be more about a brand than it is about Jesus. Leaders build trust. We pick up in this story in verses 4 through 8. And Paul, he's built trust with Julius. And uh, I'll give you a quick summary of what takes place next. If you look uh, on the map, you're going to see that they are making slow progress uh, as they move forward. So this line represents uh, where they headed. They started out way down here in Caesarea. And they're making their, they made their way up to Sidon, where they took, in mean, one day, they made quite a bit of progress. And then 
He sends Paul away to be refreshed by his friends and now they're slowly making their way up the coastline, probably um, in a sailing ship that would hug the coast. It wasn't a big seafaring vessel and they struggle to make their way around Cyprus and they head toward Myra and then they have a lot of struggles here by uh, Nidus and they come around towards Crete. And by the time that they get to Crete, they're really struggling and they make it into this place called uh, Fair Havens. And it's there where they come aboard an Egyptian ship, this transporting grain to Italy. And so they, they change ships, and all of a sudden, the story really begins to get interesting. The problem is that this isn't a good port to winter in. Okay, It's not safe, and so the harbor isn't protected, but it's late in the sailing season. They didn't sail... In October, in November, in December, it was just bad news. People didn't go out during the winter. It was dangerous times of the year for sailing. And it brings us to the next leadership point that we see in Paul's life. Leaders speak up. Now that may sound basic, but let me explain what I mean by that. Leaders speak up. Look in verse 10 at what Paul says. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. See, Paul couldn't help himself. Even though he's a prisoner, he has absolutely no authority. In fact, he has the opposite of that. He's a prisoner, for crying out loud. We weren't even talking, Paul. But nevertheless, he speaks up. He can't be quiet when poor judgment is being used. And that's the mark of a true leader. They speak up. When they see things going down that are, that are going bad, they, they're forced. They, they can't help themselves. They speak up. But don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand. Paul didn't speak out of turn. See, it's always easier to give advice than it is to take advice. And uh, there's a lot of people who like to armchair quarterback aren't there. But Paul's not doing that. See, Paul has experience. He's sailed over 3,500 miles in his life up to this point. He's been shipwrecked three times and he doesn't prefer to make it a fourth. And so he speaks up and he offers good leadership. Good leaders speak up no matter what the cost because they don't fear people. The gospel transforms the way in which we lead because the gospel tells us that we can speak up no matter what. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it transforms us and gives us courage in order to speak the truth. We live to please Jesus, and so we don't live to please our bosses. We don't live to please our parents or our friends or our classmates or co-workers or even a spouse or a future spouse. We live to please Jesus, and so it gives us the ability not to be rude. That's not what I'm saying. But it gives us the ability not to fear others, but to fear Jesus more and to speak the truth in love no matter the perceived cost. Now, that's not to say that we go around needlessly blowing off our mouths, dropping truth bombs on people. You ever known people who are like that? I always use the classic example. You've probably heard me before. Somebody walks up and says, I hate those shoes. I'm just being honest. I'm just being authentic. You know, it's like, well, take your authenticity and honesty, honesty somewhere else. I don't want it, you know. But somebody who's going to speak the truth in love, hey, I don't know if you know it, but you have a brown shoe on and a blue shoe. I'm going to pray for you the rest of the day. That's the kind of friend you want, you know. <laughs> Whoops. Yep. Thanks for your prayers. I'm going to need them. Leaders speak up. But there's another aspect of speaking up as well. Leaders don't sit idly by and mutter. And I, wanna, I really want to um, hammer home this point. It's interesting if you look later on, and I think it's in verse 12, look at how the leaders made the decision outside of Paul. You've got to read the text really carefully to see this. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, okay, we've got to do something, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. You know how they made the decision? We don't know what to do. Let's just vote on it. Can you imagine what life would be like if we just voted on everything? I don't know what we're going to preach on today. Let's just vote on it. What do y'all want to hear? I don't know what we're going to sing today. Let's just vote on it. Can you imagine the dysfunction that would exist if we just voted on everything? No, we need leaders. We need leaders who are willing to speak up. And Paul spoke up, but we need leaders who don't sit idly by and mutter. Let's take a vote. 
That's what they did in verse 12. Let's just take a vote. Paul had an informed decision and he stuck to his guns, even as a prisoner. Biblical leaders, they speak up with conviction. They aren't afraid to make a decision. Listen to me, folks. They aren't afraid to make a decision because because of the gospel, they know there's forgiveness. And so if they're wrong, uh, so what? They say, I was wrong. Let's fall forward. Let's try again. We don't have to be scared that we're going to mess up if we're followers of Jesus. We can step up and we can say, I'm sorry, it was my fault. Let's try to learn from this and move forward and be wiser next time. Sometimes as Christians, I think we can just become so timid and shy and we just kind of back away and we want to do everything perfectly. I always always tell our band and our musicians, hey, I'd much rather hear you passionately play and just sing to Jesus with all your might and make a few mistakes than to timidly play and try to get everything just so precise. As Christians, we need to not fear making mistakes. We're going to make mistakes along the way. It's okay. We can ask for forgiveness, both from God and from others. But seek the Lord and listen to Him and speak up firmly, with convictions, as we move forward. So, the sailors, they don't listen to Paul. They listen to one another. They vote. And they come up with their compiled wisdom. And there's no surprise here. Um, The pilot and the owner of the ship suggest they take a shot for Phoenix. And now pull the map back up for just a second. Um, Phoenix really isn't that that far away. So they're suggesting that they would leave Fairhaven's which is right here, uh, south of Crete, and that they just try to swing up to Phoenix. It's really not that far. I mean, if you look at how far they went to Sidon, it looks like it's about uh, half a day's sailing time. The only problem is they have to go north, and that really does become a problem. Um, Their tactics don't work. At first, as they set out, there's this warm south wind that blows from Africa, and they they weigh anchor, and and they sail along Crete, close to the shore, but a northeaster comes up and strikes them down, and they lose all control of the ship completely. They begin to be pushed southwestward, and guess what? If they're pushed southwestward enough, what are they going to hit? They're going to hit Africa. They're going to be pushed out into the open sea. And over the next few verses in 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, we see uh, these nautical tactics that begin to take place. And I'm not going to go into great detail about them. I'm just going to mention them. But all these things that they're doing, just literally trying to stay alive. So in verse 16, it says that they secured the ship's boat. There was a dinghy that they would pull behind them most likely in order that when they... uh, would put down an anchor that they could get to the shore and back. This dinghy that just kind of trailed behind them was most likely filling up with water. And as it filled up with water, it threatened to either sink them or or sink the ship. And so with a lot of trouble, they get that dinghy in and then they begin to wrap the ship in cables. This was a tactic that they used in order to try to keep the ship together. When they were in hurricane force winds or typhoon type winds like they're facing, would literally seek to pull that tongue and groove of the ship apart, which was held together just by pitch. And so they would literally wrap the ship with cables and then they begin to lower the gear they probably brought the mainsail down and dropped the sea anchor in. They're doing everything in their power to try to slow themselves from making that southward progression because they know that if they aren't careful, they will hit that ship graveyard that is known to them right off the coast of Africa where so many other ships have been lost. They begin to jettison the cargo, so the very wheat that they carried, they're getting rid of in verse 18. And then in verse 19, they literally are throwing the ship's tackle overboard. Do you get what's going on here? They're saying, hey, they're losing hope along the way. They're saying, "Uh, our lives are more important than this cargo we're carrying, so we might make this whole voyage and not get paid, but we're going to get rid of this grain. So they start tossing it over. Then they look and they say, our lives are more important than this ship. So we're going to start literally getting rid of the pulleys and the tackle that make up this ship. We don't have to, they just want to do everything in their power to try to lighten the ship so that they can ride out this storm. They're being tossed about. Look in verse 20. They've lost all hope. Everyone's got to be seasick by now. They're hopeless. They're just awaiting death. And look at what Paul does. I mean, picture that for a moment with me. Just the darkness that they experienced. Have you ever experienced darkness before? Maybe you've injured yourself. 
found yourself in a hospital bed or found yourself laid up at home or just been really sick with the flu. Isn't it amazing how just two or three days of running a fever and kind of being isolated, all of a sudden you find yourself just kind of slipping into this depression? Maybe that's just me. Anybody else? It's crazy. You're like, what was life like before I was sick? It's like, well, three days ago, it wasn't that bad, you know? Um, and that's what's going on here, but it's so much worse. There are hurricane force winds that they have been experiencing for over two weeks. They haven't been able to distinguish night from day. They haven't seen the sun or the stars. They have no idea where they're headed other than they're blowing southward toward Africa and the ship is going to be torn apart. The dampness has seeped into everything. Just imagine it with me. The pitching waves, the blowing rain, the roaring wind, the damp sea that's infiltrated probably their food by this point, their garments. Feels like even their souls are a little damp. And everybody's just sitting around waiting on, for death to come. But we see the third point in verse 21. Biblical leaders encourage. Leaders encourage. Look in, in verses 21 through 26. Paul encourages these men. In the midst of this death trap, Paul stands and he shares encouraging words. Uh, first, he has to earn their trust. And so he reminds them, he said, Remember, guys, I told you that we didn't need to head out on this voyage. Now, Paul isn't saying that in such a way to say, I told you so. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's trying to earn influence. He's a prisoner for crying out loud. Why is anybody going to listen to the prisoner? Hey, guys, I've got an idea. Let's listen to the prisoner. Maybe he's got a good idea. No. Paul had to earn their trust. He had to earn influence with them. And so he's saying, guys, listen to me. Listen to me. No one has any idea what's going on. And I told you that this would happen. But he goes on and he begins to, as he gains influence with them, he begins to share the good news. He says, but an angel of the Lord appeared to me and he shares with them. He says, you're all going to be saved. Now, he didn't have to tell them that. Paul could have just said, I got good news, these guys. Man, they're carrying me to, to Italy and they've been against me and I'm just going to let them sit here and rot and think they're going to die. Paul doesn't do that. Paul has a genuine heart for these men. He has a genuine love for them. He wants to see them encouraged. And he tells them, men, take heart. And this isn't a small amount of men. This isn't a dozen people on a little ship. The scriptures say there were 276 men. I can only imagine what the ship's quarters must have been like as Paul managed to get these men together and to yell at them above the storm and to say, take heart, men, take heart. My God has appeared to me and we're all going to be saved. Because of the gospel, Christians always have good news. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we always have good news, no matter our circumstances. At work, on the job, in difficult times of life, Christians ought to be the most positive, the least pessimistic people in the world. Do you believe that? For the Christian, it should be impossible to break our wills. Our identity is Christ and our home is with Him. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel sorry um, at times, that we shouldn't feel sorrow or that we shouldn't struggle at times. Yeah, those are going to be a part of the Christian life. But our hope can't be taken away from us. Do you believe that? That your hope can't be taken away because it's not found circumstantially. Our hope is found in Jesus. It's found in the one who has finished the work. And so Christians ought to be the most positive, the least pessimistic people around. And that's the kind of people, honestly, that I want to be around. I've reached a point in my life in which um, I'm not saying that, I, that, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that I'm not interested in ministering to people who are down and out because that's what ministry is. I'm not saying that I'm not interested in working alongside volunteers who are pessimistic because many of us are. But I am saying that if I have my choice, I want to surround myself with positive people. Amen? I want to surround myself with people who are optimistic. I do not want to surround myself with people who are, who are just shadowed by sarcasm and it just oozes and leaks out of them uh, at all times. In fact, I've made a decision in my life that I'm going to not invite those people to be around me all the time because I want to be around positive people because Christians should be encouraging people. Christians should be people who have not lost heart. We believe in the power 
of God who has changed our life who loves to draw men and women and children to himself. And he goes searching for the lost sheep. He says he loves to leave the 99 in order to go after the one. That's an optimistic God. That's a God who says, I'm going to leave 99. I think I can find the one because the one is important. And he goes after them. That is the God who we serve. God's best work is in the arena of the impossible. And I want to be around people who worship that kind of God. I want to be around people who revel in the power of God and who have joyous lives as a result of that. That's the kind of people I want to serve arm in arm with. Because you know what? When I'm arm in arm with those kind of people, it doesn't matter if we're working on a really hot, kind of dirty and dusty house. I have great fun when we're doing that like we did yesterday because I'm around positive people who are looking with vision and with joy at the results. They're not caught up in sarcasm and in melancholy moods about all that they could complain about today. I want to find myself in a place where I am around people who I can encourage, people who will be encouraged. Biblical leaders encourage. The fourth principle that we see comes in verse verse 41. Biblical leaders, they take initiative. This is huge. Leaders take initiative. Look with me in verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Man, there's a lot of foreshadowing there. There's a lot that um, we could go into there about salvation comes by uh, staying in the ship. But I want to move on. Paul takes initiative. It's been 14 nights that they've been bruised and battered by this storm. And and something gives them the indication that they're approaching land. And so they begin to start measuring the depth. And they see that sure enough, they're getting close. And they fear that they're going to crash onto the rocks and that the boat's going to sink. And so some men, they sneak out uh, into... They sneak out into uh, the ocean and they're pretending that they will set out anchors from the bow, from one of the small boats that was there on the ship. And Paul steps in and he takes initiative and he warns them. He says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. See, Paul was certain of the Lord's calling and promise to him. He spoke with authority. He spoke with conviction. A prisoner is now commanding the men who are there on the ship. He speaks with authority. He speaks with conviction because his words came not from his own wisdom. wisdom, They came from the Lord. His initiative saved the men's lives. They put their faith in Paul's words so strongly that they cut the ropes and they left it behind. Now look at how the story ends. The story ends in just an amazing way. When it was day, they recognized land. They don't notice a bay. They don't recognize which land it is, but they see a bay with a beach. Now, let me, uh, we've talked about the providence of God quite a bit. So I don't want to, uh, I'm not going to spend any extra time on that, but I just want to point something out on the map to you. Um, go back to the map for just a moment. <clears throat> now, the, the land they are crashing into uh, is an island called Malta. Let me help you out just a moment because you can't really see. This is where they've drifted all along. They've drifted all across this ocean. Do you see that little bitty island right there, Malta? Now they went and they had tied the rudder. They had tied the rudder because they couldn't keep it in place. And they had tied the rudder in the hope that they would not continue moving southward. Who was in charge of that rudder all along? Do you see the one island that they could have found. They didn't find it. God placed them on that island. They didn't see the sun or the stars for over two weeks. They were in a storm in which they could barely see their hand in front of them. And by God's providence, God led them to an island in the middle of nowhere. He could have allowed them to flounder at sea. He could have allowed them, like most boats, to crash into Africa. But instead, He takes them in a straight line for the only island and the only hope that they had, the island of Malta. Amazing. Amazing at God's providence. Now look at how things end. They see Malta ahead of them. They don't recognize it. And so they cast off the anchors. And they left them in the sea. Do you see what they're doing here? 
They're like, we're going to crash this ship on this island. This ship is not going to leave this island. But we've got to get as much weight off of it as possible. And so we're just going to leave the anchors in the ocean. They loosened the ropes that had tied the rudders. So they're going to actually try to steer the boat now. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But if you've ever been snorkeling before, you'll, you'll see a beautiful beach many times. And it looks as if there's just depths of water. But if there's a reef... Many times the reef will maybe just be three or four feet under the surface. And they hit that reef. They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck. So that means that they got pretty far over it and the bow is the back of the ship. They've really gotten stuck good. They're not getting off of this reef. And not only that, but now the wind and the waves are battering them in such a way that the ship is beginning to break up. And we see the fifth principle of leadership, especially of biblical leadership. Leaders create leaders. I love this. Leaders create leaders. Look at what Paul's biblical leadership has brought about as a result. Um, we pick up in verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Now, why were they going to kill the prisoners? Think about that. For the soldiers, they knew if these prisoners get away, if somehow they make it to shore and they get away and someone finds us and they say, what happened to the prisoner? And I say, he got away. I didn't know what to do. We were all swimming for shore. Then I'm going to be killed. So they said, I'll take, the next, uh, I'll take the next best option, plan B. I don't know what they'll do if we kill the prisoners, but I know that I will be killed if the prisoners get away. So we're just going to kill them all. And look at what happens but the centurion, Julius, wishing to save Paul. Paul has made such an impact on this man. Kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who would swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest, those who couldn't swim on planks or on pieces of the ship. So that it was that all were brought safely to land. 276 men brought safely to land. I love it. Leaders create leaders. Where are you at in your life? Jesus has called each of us to make disciples. When we talked about leadership earlier, it would have been appropriate if many of you would have said, when I hear the word leadership, what comes to mind if you would have just said your name? Brad, Matt, Tiffany, Peter, Lori, Min, Jessica, Erlene, Jonathan. Jesus said that He's equipped us, that He's called us to go and make disciples. He's told us that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I think one of the saddest things that we experience within the Christian life today is the weakness and the lack of leadership that the church offers. I'm not talking about the church like the big organizational church. I'm not talking about what you see on websites and the programs and the solutions that congregations as a body have to offer. I'm talking about the untapped potential and leadership that lies within individuals within a church to step up and to truly believe that they have received power and that the Holy Spirit has come upon them and that God has truly called them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And to believe not only that that's God's desire, but that He's going to do it. Do you believe He's going to do it? And that He's not going to do it through those amazing people who are out there. And it's not like the Olympics today where everybody's a, you know, amazing athlete. Jeff and I were talking about this earlier in the week and everybody's an official athlete and everybody's sponsored. No, it's like in the old days where you couldn't be an official athlete to go to the Olympics. And the Olympics were for everyone. And that's what the Christian life is like. The Christian life is for everyone because God says that everyone receives power. And it doesn't matter what your education is or your background, or your finances, that you have the Holy Spirit and that God is at work. I would love to see what it looks like to be a part of a church that allows the Lord to really tap the leadership within that church. I believe we're beginning to see it today at Mercy Hill. I see people just rising up who are taking on leadership. 
The elders are meeting tomorrow night. We're meeting with a group of young, uh, men who have come to us and said, we're interested in starting a youth group. We're interested in helping the youth who are part of Mercy Hill uh, have a place where they feel at home, That's where people who are teaching and investing in them along with their parents. We're interested in talking about that. These are men who have come to us. We didn't go to them. I've been dreaming about having a youth group for years. I've got teenagers in my home. I want people investing in them other than me. They don't listen to me. I'm an idiot. They love you. And all of a sudden we have men who are coming to us and they're saying, we want to start, that's incredible ministry. That's the church at work. That's leadership. That's discipleship. God's called all of us to make disciples. I encourage you to evaluate your life, to look at the way you spend your time, to look at the way you spend your finances, to look at the gifts and the talents you've been given, and to realize that your day job is not the main thing that God's called you to. Your day job is what you happen to do, and that God has equipped you in such a way that as you do your day job, He has called you to do the more important job, which is to make disciples, who will then go on and make disciples. That's what's so amazing. And it's beginning to happen around us, Mercy Hill. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's happening around us. I got back from running yesterday morning. Got back. It was about 8.30. I'm on my porch and Terrell is sitting on my porch. And I'm like, why is Terrell on my porch? I mean, I'm, Terrell's always welcome. And Terrell hangs out on my porch a lot. But I'm like, why is Terrell on my porch at 8.30 on Saturday morning? That's a little strange. And Terrell goes, I've been up since like 6 this morning. I said, that's good. And we were talking. And then Terrell finally said, hey, are you going to work on that house today? I said, yeah, I'm probably going over there in a minute. I got to get something to eat. And I got to get something to drink. And I got to change clothes. But why are you interested in going? He said, yeah, I'm going to ride my bike over there and go. Terrell was up. At 8 a.m. or 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Why? Because his church family is remodeling a house. And nobody asked Terrell to come. But that 21-year-old said, I'm getting my rear end out of the bed because I'm excited because I want to go and work. Because I want to see single moms have a roof over their head because he's getting a taste of the kingdom of God. And he's getting excited about it. There's no sign-up list that he signed up on. I didn't go and recruit him. He, was, he said, I'm going to ride on over there. I'm not going to wait on you. I'm going to ride on over there, and I'm going to gra gratefully and joyously get involved. That is what it looks like when the kingdom of God begins moving forward. And that's just one little story, and that's just a part of a story. Because Marcy was helping Terrell study last week for a test he has coming up. And our missional communities come around him and he's applied for a job and we're praying that God will open up this job. It's just one part of one little story where we see the kingdom of God breaking through and you see multiple stories that are taking place within your missional community and within your life. And I want to call us as a church not to devalue those or underestimate them. Because the power of God is at work in our lives. Jesus has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Holy Spirit, listen, if the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then there is power that is at work from our lives, not because we're powerful, but because the Holy Spirit is powerful. Okay? And we need to have great expectations. We need to be the kind of men and women who think positively, who aren't pessimistic and who aren't sarcastic and who don't look around and say, here's all the reasons why it's not going to work, but that we look forward for our city and for the world and for Midtown and that we say the gospel is on the move and God has many people in this place. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have rescued our hearts. Jesus, thank you that you have given us a new outlook on life and that you enable us by your spirit, God, not to get tired and not to grow weary, uh, but that you enable us to soar with wings like eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. And so, God, I pray that spiritually as a church, I'm not talking about our physical bodies. Jesus, I pray that spiritually as a church that you would strengthen our faith, that we would believe that you truly have given us power. And that you've called each of us to be leaders, strong leaders. And that you desire 
to see literally midtown change in the same way that we look at Overton Square and we say, man, Loeb Properties revolutionized that place, that we would look and that we would see a church meeting in Overton Square and that we would look back a decade and two decades and three decades from now and that we would say the Holy Spirit revolutionized that place because He brought a group of people who were servants, who were humble, who were willing to take initiative and speak up and who had vision that was given by God and who were not willing to step away. Jesus, would you strengthen us for the task that is at hand? Would you strengthen the moms who are here today who uh, stay at home and don't feel glamorous and they're raising up amazing disciples and they're creating leaders? Would you strengthen them? Would you strengthen the teachers who are here today who statistics would say are against them, but they're fighting the good fight and they're representing Jesus in the classroom and they have a worldview that's different than the culture around them. Would you strengthen them for the task that's at hand in the morning as they head back into that sometimes what seems like a toxic environment? God, would you enable them to be the sun, to be the light in that place of darkness? God, I pray for the man and the woman who's here today and who's just discouraged and maybe they don't even know why. But spiritually and emotionally, they're tired. God, I pray that this would be a place where community could be trusted and where there could be friends that they could come along beside and say, I believe in the power of God. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me now? And that they wouldn't leave this place discouraged or alone, but that they would find hope in you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you that we cannot be shaken, that our circumstances, no matter what they are, that you can't be taken away from us. And so we have joy. May our joy be in you, Jesus, and in you alone. It's in your name that we pray.